0: Hi everybody, Jimmy DeYoung here at Broadcast Central in Chattanooga, Tennessee. We invite you to give us 90 minutes, if you will. I'm going to give you the world. We have our broadcast partners all over the world getting ready to respond to the questions I'm going to ask them about current events. We're going to get the details from them, the real story behind what we see in the headlines in the newspapers or here on radio or television news. And if you'll give me 90 minutes, I give you the world. This will help you to better understand how these current events are actually setting the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. That's the banner, by the way, over our website, looking at current events in light of biblical prophecy. And that is key. We don't allow the current events to drive our understanding of Bible prophecy. The scriptures do that. The prophetic passages help us to understand God's plan. But it's always great to enhance our understanding of how these scenarios, these prophetic scenarios laid out in the Word of God, may be coming better into focus. We're going to our first broadcast partner. He's in southern France. It's Ken Timmerman. You recognize the name. Ken is an author, and he has written a brand new book that is just about to go public. It's entitled Election Heist and I've I've, uh, got just a little bit out of Ken as to what he is uh, talking about in this particular novel. And by the way, it is a novel fiction. He's able to explain exactly what may well be happening in this next election. Ken, I am so excited about this book, can't wait to get my copy of it, but you're suggesting people can now pre-order it. Is that correct?
1: You you can pre-order the book, and then you're going to know blow by blow what's going to happen in November of 2020, because I tell the story of the election before it actually happens. You can go to my website, com. There's a copy of the cover there. You just click that, and it takes you to Amazon, where you can pre-order. The story's all about an election in the, in Maryland, in suburban Maryland, where I was actually a Republican candidate uh, eight years ago, and uh, you know a guy running against an entrenched Democrat, and I figured, well... Who could possibly beat an entrenched Democrat? Certainly wasn't me. So my main character is a rich, Hispanic, handsome, telegenic media personality who is the king of the barrio in Montgomery County. And he's he's just running rings around this poor Democrat. But you're going to see. uh, I'm not going to tell you what's going to happen at the end of the story, but a little hint is in the title, The Election Heist.
0: Oh, yes, and uh, it's going to be an exciting read for you, especially when uh, you have some time maybe to spend more time reading, and prior to the election, it'll be a, a great read. Well, Ken, let's get to the action as it relates to current events, and you're giving us your analysis of them. First of all, I understand that an Israeli defense official has made the statement that Iran is pulling out of Syria. How serious is that statement?
1: Well, it's a, it's a big deal and it certainly there appears to be very much some truth to this. The Iranians have been hammered, hammered, hammered again by the Israeli defense forces, by the air force. The air force has hit their positions and their bases all across Syria, not just close to Israel, but as far away as you can get up along the Iraqi border. The Iranians were not expecting that to happen. They thought that the Russians would protect them with their new uh, S-300 and S-400 air defense missiles in Syria. The Russians have not protected them at all, uh, and the Israelis have been able to penetrate those missile defenses. And now it appears, and it really does appear to be true, that they are starting to pull back Some of the Revolutionary Guards forces in Syria, they're being hit very hard by the collapse in oil prices, which was coordinated between Russia and Saudi Arabia, as you recall, just about two months ago now. Uh, That's hitting them very, very hard because 80 percent of their income of the government comes from the sale of oil. They're not able to get oil out onto the black market any longer because of U.S. sanctions. So they are being hit very hard. And I would say one, one more very important thing about this, Jimmy, is that we're seeing now the payoff for what I think was a very courageous operation carried out by U.S. special forces at the direction of President Trump in early January of this year to kill Qasem Soleimani, the head of Iran's... Quds Force, their Overseas Terrorist Task Force, if you wish. They're guerrillas on the ground. And these are the people who were running the operations in Syria, and they no longer have the juice with the Iranian government that they had when Soleimani was alive. So by taking out Soleimani, we have also, uh, I won't say we've crippled the Quds Force, but we have definitely weakened them very seriously. And that's a good
0: thing. Well, Soleimani was uh, pretty much the mastermind of uh, the entire Middle East strategy as far as Iran is concerned, not only there in Syria, but in Iraq. Uh, Iran's made a a major stand and tried to take control of that nation as well. And after about a five-month deadlock, it seems like now there is a new Iraqi prime minister. This is good, bad, or is it indifferent?
1: Well, I think this is also a good thing, and just as in Syria, it shows a decrease of Iranian interest. The Iranians uh, were controlling Iraq up until we killed Soleimani. It was not just their backyard, it was their front yard, (laughs) their side yard. It was their front porch. When we took out Soleimani on January 2nd of this year in that drone strike uh, outside of the airport in Baghdad, it really drove home to Iraqis that Iran was not as all-powerful as they had been making people believe. So now you have, after this long standoff, where Iran had rejected two earlier candidates for prime minister because they weren't pro-Iranian enough, they've now had to settle or the former intelligence chief, Mustafa al-Kadhimi, Khadimi, is... I don't think that you can say he's Iran's guy, uh, but they've got to settle for him because they can't allow Iraq to go down as a country, to have the government go down. There have been protests in in Iraq despite the lockdown from coronavirus. People have been protesting corruption, uh, lack of basic services, and they've been pinning the blame on Iran. So... The, the, the Iranian regime needs stability in Iraq, and this new prime minister is going to provide it for them, even if he's not going to do their bidding the way they had hoped.
0: Let me circle back to Syria just a moment. Uh, it looks like Bashar Assad, president of Syria, has broken the Syrian ceasefire, especially with Turkey. Will Turkey's army punish Assad for that?
1: Well, they continue to be at loggerheads. That ceasefire has been on again, off again. Uh, I don't uh, think the recent clashes are a major breach of the ceasefire. I don't think it's going to fall apart because neither the Syrians nor the Turks have, they don't want to be confronting each other directly at this point. They really have in, more interests in common than they do against that are driving them apart. So I think what you're seeing are their technical flare-ups, but I don't think you're going to see a major breakdown of the ceasefire at this point.
0: We have talked about what's going on over there in Libya. Looks like Russia's getting more involved. About 1,200 militia people going in there to fight in Libya. What's the latest?
1: Well, I love it when I see uh, a headline about the Wagner Group. This is the name of this so called Russian private security company uh, with former Spetsnaz officers. Spetsnaz are Russian special forces guys. You, you read about them in all the spy novels, <laughs> right? They're, they're Very well trained, you know, bulked up. They're, they're very serious, serious people, serious fighters until they meet our special operations people. There was a Clash that we had when we were still in Syria in a big way in the early days of the Trump administration, where President Trump had drawn a red line uh, across the Syrian desert and told Putin, Don't you dare go across that red line towards the oil fields because we're defending the oil fields. He sent his special forces guys from the Wagner group, the Wagner group, across that line, and uh, 200 of them came back the next day in body bags. So uh, they may be Spetsnaz, former Spetsnaz, former special, uh, special forces, but they're not supermen. There are 1,200 of them now headed to Libya to shore up the regime of General Haftar, who is the anti-Islamist general in Benghazi. And we should be the ones there, in my opinion, on the ground helping General Haftar. But we have decided to stay out of this battle, and so it's the Russians helping the anti-Islamist general in Benghazi against a government supported by uh, Islamist forces and by the European Union, at least part of it, in Tripoli. So 1,200 spetsnaz on the ground in Benghazi. This could get spicy.
0: It could get spicy. We're going to continue to watch it with you, Ken. You stay on top of it for us, if you will. By the way... Uh, It looks like to me, Gaddafi was uh, not the kind of guy we'd really like to lead Libya, but he controlled all the tribal factions there in Libya. It's going to need another strong man to do that, isn't it?
1: Well, I argued for many years that we had actually tamed Gaddafi in 2004. It was one of the greatest foreign policy victories of any recent president, and certainly one for George W. Bush. He never took credit for it. The media never gave him the opportunity to, nor did Congress. He transformed Gaddafi from being an enemy of America, from being a terrorist-in-chief, responsible for taking down Pan Am 103 in Lockerbie in 1988, transformed him from a wannabe nuclear power and nuclear dictator into an American ally in the war against al-Qaeda and radical Islam. And then Obama comes into power. What, what does he do? He throws him overboard along with other American allies in the region in favor of the Arab Spring and the Muslim Brotherhood. And the result? Chaos we're still seeing that chaos today. Uh, I'm not so sure that's a strong man you need, but you certainly need a strong government in Libya that can beat back the islamists that are desperate to take
0: over the country. Politics sure does make strange bedfellows as someone in the past has made that statement. Well, that's why we have Ken Temerman to look at all of this, give us the information we need to understand what's going on. Ken, thank you so much. Hope you get a lot of pre-orders for your book, Election Heist, and we'll talk again next week.
1: Thanks so much, Jimmy. God bless. Be well.
0: We're going to take a break, and when we come back, David Dolan's standing by. He's got a Middle East news update for us right here on Prophecy Today.
2: Just how close are we to the rapture of the church? Do events taking place in the Middle East and around the world have prophetic significance? In his latest book, Sound the Trumpets, Jimmy DeYoung examines these questions and explains just how near the rapture of the church could possibly be. By comparing four trends from prophetic scripture to current events taking place in the world today, Jimmy shows that the stage is set. Every actor is in place, and the curtain is about to go up on the end-time scenario set forth in the Scriptures. Sound the Trumpets is a must-read for every serious student of Bible prophecy. To order your copy of Jimmy DeYoung's new book, Sound the Trumpets, for only $15, call us today at 8-PROPHECY-8. That's 877-674-3298. Or visit us on the World Wide Web at prophecytoday.com. Call today and make sure to get your copy of Sound the Trumpets. Every believer needs to understand Bible prophecy... Whether you're a novice or a student, we are here to help you. Just visit prophecytoday.com and click on the link for the Prophecy Bookstore. There you will find a large selection of CD sets, DVDs, and books for the Bible Prophecy Student written by Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and other prominent scholars. While you're there, be sure to check out Dr. DeYoung's latest series called Presidents, Politics, and Prophecy. This series examines how God has used human leaders in general and specifically
0: Welcome back to Prophecy Today. Jimmy DeYoung here at Broadcast Central in Chattanooga. So glad you're with us still. We ask for 90 minutes if you'll do that. We'll give you the world and help you to better understand how current events are actually setting the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. That's our mission, looking at current events in light of biblical prophecy. And now we're going to get a Middle East news update from David Dolan, a longtime journalist in that region of the world. David, you know Benjamin Netanyahu. I know him. We both have interviewed him before. The man's a political genius or a musician. I'm not sure which one, uh, but uh, the president, Reuven Rivlin, appointed him uh, this last week to put together a Israeli government, and uh, in fact, he pulled it out of the hat. It's the fifth term for the prime minister. This guy, Netanyahu, is really something else, isn't he?
3: He is an amazing uh, politician and a strong leader and a quite bright man. I've told on your program before that I first interviewed him the night he was elected to the Knesset the first time, which was 1986 and he'd been serving as uh, ambassador for Israel at the United Nations, so he was already a known figure. And uh talked to him about ten minutes with four or five other reporters at the Likud party headquarters in Tel Aviv. And afterwards I said to one of my colleagues, this man will be prime minister one day. He's got that much of a command about him, that much... Of a presence and a charisma. I don't know. You could use all sorts of words, but he certainly has. And now, the longest serving prime minister in Israel's history. He's supposed to serve another 18 months under this coalition deal and then hand it over to Benny Gantz, the blue and white party leader in a rotation deal but 72 members of the Knesset by Thursday evening had recommended him as the next prime minister, so that's a solid government, 12 more than he needs to have a solid government, and uh, they, of course... It's an emergency government, mainly to deal with the economic implications of the coronavirus, which has basically died out in Israel almost, Jimmy, which is good news. There's just uh, The number of new cases is dropping, and uh, there were a few more deaths this week, but not that many. Things are opening up again, but of course the tourism industry and others are very extremely hard hit, and that's what they're going to focus on.
0: Well, he's focused on annexing, or at least his campaign promises were that he was going to give Israeli sovereignty to Judea and Samaria, the Jordan Valley. We don't know if that's going to be able to happen, but the Palestinians are saying if annexation does take place, they're going to tear up the Oslo Accords and all the other agreements that they have with Israel. I'm not so sure how bad it's going to be because they have not been abiding by the agreements basically anyway, have they?
3: They haven't, Jimmy, except in one area, and that is security. There continues to be pretty good cooperation between Israel and the Palestinian Authority over security matters, the U.S.-trained Palestinian security force pretty much keeps the laws. And, of course, they turned their own guns against Israel in the second uprising in 2000. But apart from that era, it's worked out pretty well. But yes, now uh, Abbas is saying if you go ahead and annex, well, the plan is 35% of Judea and Samaria, basically, that the United States has signaled it would uh, look the other way if Israel annexed those areas. And those are all Jewish-dominated uh, towns and neighborhoods. Uh, in the West Bank, in Judea and Samaria, and of course, as you mentioned, the Jordan Valley, that for strategic purposes. A very popular stand in Israel, about 70% of the people want to see this happen. But of course, Abbas says, we'll pull out and you will have responsibility for everything again, meaning economically and and in the security uh, zone, and they don't want to send their forces back into Nablus and and, uh, Ramallah and these um, all-Arab towns where there are no Jews, where the soldiers in the past have been regularly attacked. So they're hoping that wouldn't happen. But again, uh, with the virus and everything else going on, we'll have to see how this all develops. But it would be the worst time for Israel to have to assume uh, those responsibilities from the
0: Palestinian Authority. David, this last week, an Israeli defense official said that Iran is actually leaving or in the process of leaving Syria. What do you know about that?
3: Yes, there are indications of that, but then other reports are countering that, Jimmy, so I'm not sure what to believe. They clearly have moved their main headquarters from near Damascus further north to near the town of Aleppo, and the Israelis, in fact, militarily struck some of those sites in recent days. So they're moving inside the country, and some indications that maybe because of the effects of the virus inside Iran, maybe because of other strategic decisions that they may be reducing or pulling out, and that's what was being suggested. But. I think that remains to be seen. The Iranian leaders are saying the opposite, that they're there, they're there to stay, they have every right to be because they were asked by the Syrian government to be there, and that the Syrian regime still has internal enemies, which is definitely the case, and they need extra defense from Iran, supposedly. So I don't think we'll see them going anywhere. And certainly Hezbollah remains uh, throughout uh, southern Syria. I doubt if we'll see the government force them out, and they won't leave on their own, I don't think.
0: And David, you and I have read the last chapter. We know that Iran and Hezbollah, as you just mentioned, these will be major players in the end-time scenario as foretold by the prophet Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 38. More on that when I take a look at the book. Well, the Trump peace plan seems to be surfacing again in Israel. The U.S. ambassador to Israel talking about it. David, is this peace plan alive and well, or is it dead?
3: Well, that remains to be seen. Certainly the annexation part, as we talked about, the new Israeli government seems like it will go ahead and propose that. There's definitely a majority in the Knesset to support that getting through. So that part of it... But uh, as far as the actual peace, well, we just talked about it. Abbas says, we'll tear up all the previous accords, uh, let alone accept this new one. And they bash it every day, and so does most of the uh, surrounding countries, Arab countries. The Jordanians are very wary of it. The Egyptians have problems with uh, parts of it, et cetera. So... Uh, very unlikely that there'll be much in the way of an actual peace agreement or accord uh, in the end or the economic part the economic part of course was based on large donations that were going to be made by the Gulf Arab states mostly now many of them are in ec- they 're all in economic crisis with the price of oil collapsing and the virus is still spreading rather strongly in Saudi Arabia and some of the other countries in the area so whether there would even be that element of it to uh, go ahead. <laughs> Whether the, do- the dollars would be there, in other words, is a big question, too. So I don't expect peace, but I do think we may see this annexation. And of course, if we do, there will be a violent reaction to it, probably.
0: David, this last week in Israel, a big, big controversy arose that uh, I wanted to ask you about because of your long time residency in the state of Israel. An Israeli cabinet member says that Israel will never allow a Christian network to be in the Jewish state of Israel. What basically happened was God TV got permission to put a Hebrew-speaking network, a Christian network, on the air. Uh, This controversy is not going to go away, and it looks like the Orthodox are really rising up against it. Talk to me about this controversy.
3: Well, Jimmy, it's actually been going on for decades now. Um, I worked for the first uh, Christian network to have a, a base in Israel in the 1980s. That was uh, the Christian Broadcasting Network, Pat Robertson's network. Uh, and uh, there was the same sort of statements made then. You can't be here. What are you doing, et cetera? But... Uh, we broadcast in English and Arabic only, no Hebrew, but we knew that our English uh, news program in particular, it was the only one on in those days in Israel. They had none on in their state uh, network. They do now, but they didn't then. And a lot of Israelis would watch it, and a lot of the Arabs would watch the Arabic network, and we were pretty pro-Israel in terms of what you heard around the area from most of the media. So uh, it was allowed to continue, but be grudgingly and every few years we had a cabinet minister we had an official say you got to shut it down shut it down and it uh, eventually they did shut down the station but they continue to have a bureau there i know the people that work there and the god channel uh, they were headquartered right across the street from my home in central Jerusalem. So and they were firebombed and had to leave that facility. But they've been in Israel for quite a few years now, and so have Daystar, and so have others. I don't think they're going to prevent it, but broadcasting in Hebrew, that is another step. And I'm uh, surprised if they can get away with that. I think that probably will be
0: halted if they try that. We'll stay on top of this story and others with David Dolan as we have a weekly conversation with this journalist over 35 years in the state of Israel or the Middle East up in southern Lebanon, as he just told us. And we're so appreciative of his reports to us. David, thank you so much, my good friend. Be well, and we'll have another conversation next week. Thank you, too, Jimmy. Be well. God bless. God bless. We're going to take a break when we come back. Winky Madad on the other side of the break. He's going to go more in-depth on how this plan came together, the political plan to form a unity government. That's all ahead right here on Prophecy Today.
2: Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy
0: DeYoung here at Broadcast Central, Chattanooga, Tennessee, as has been the case for about six or seven weeks now. And we don't know how long we will be here, but uh, we're going to continue to have this broadcast coming out from wherever we may be. That's the genius of the electronic operations of today. Well, Winky Madad is standing by. You know, we have been watching what's going on in the election process there. Without going to the fourth elections, they thought they had maybe put a unity government together. Then there was a hiccup as it relates to the Supreme Court. I want to get to that with Winky, but first, Winky, I know that the outgoing members of the cabinet for the present caretaker government, led by Benjamin Netanyahu, he is... Uh, Watching as his minister of defense, Naftali Bennett, is doing some very important things as it relates to especially the Jewish communities in Judea and Samaria. I understand he just approved 7,000 housing units in Ifrat, and that is pretty key because Ifrat is wanting to be qualified as a city. Give us a bit of information about Ifrat and uh, the fact that Naftali Bennett moving out to before he is removed because of the new government coming in, uh, agreeing to put up 7,000 housing
4: units? Well, Jimmy, the first thing we have to remember is that, and I think we've discussed it before, the legal department within the military governor recently, and when I say recently, I'm talking about maybe a decade, has been very slow. My guess is purposely so in passing through the various phases of bureaucracy that any construction on either side of the green line needs to go through. Plans have to be tabled, closeness to uh, sewerage, uh, electric, or other type of elements that all make up a house. You just can't put up a house. I, I'm, I'm not that familiar with America because I left before I was even able to build my own house there. But there are a lot of zoning restrictions and, and, and obligations that one has to do, especially if you're building a neighborhood. You have to put in a park. You have to put in a school. You have to put in uh, a commercial area. It's a very complicated. And if you slow things up, then you begin to have a bottleneck, which, of course, will lead into maybe 7,000 houses all at once being approved or at least authorized so that's the backdrop to this and so the second one i want to make sure that people understand Ephrat is in the area of what we call gush etzion gush etzion was where four kibbutzim existed up until 1948 in other words it's in an area that is not strange to the jewish people and is not something uh, as some people try to say oh your biblical homeland this was something that was 70, 80 years ago, very recent in, in terms of history, and so this area once again is being revitalized, shall I say, and anybody who's been out there from Efrat, which is almost a city to various kibbutzim and community centers know that even almost all politicians will know that it will remain within Israel no matter what happens.
0: Well this is all information that helps us to understand why the putting together of an Israeli government is so key. By the way, it's interesting also to note that ifrat is on one side of Bethlehem, the Palestinian city, and on the other side, Har Homa, which is one of the neighborhoods of the city of Jerusalem, and they're putting a squeeze on Bethlehem. Bethlehem's not going to be able to expand its borders because of these two Jewish settlements or two Jewish communities in the area known as Judea and Samaria. bit of information thought would be interesting to you as we see this government coming together. Now, what's the latest, Winky, from the Israeli Supreme Court on Netanyahu being allowed to form a government?
4: Well, the Supreme Court finally, I think, was stymied. They had no alternative because the law, and I think we discussed this again previously, is very clear on the issue that Mr. Netanyahu, despite a criminal charge being uh, placed before the court and him having to go to trial, the law says he can be the prime minister. There's no way that the Supreme Court could have turned that around. Not only that, but elements of the upcoming coalition agreement also were passed, or shall we say, not interfered with by the Supreme Court, because once again, this is a matter of politics, which belongs in the Knesset, which is where politics belong, not in the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court maybe could say we're embarrassed by it, we're upset by it, but that's a personal opinion by a judge. It has nothing to do with what the law says, so that this week, The path was cleared for Mr. Netanyahu and Mr. Gantz to draw up their coalition agreements and to move ahead, and as happened on the Thursday, 72 signatures were handed in to the president of Israel, Mr. Ruby Rivlin, recommending Mr. Netanyahu be given 14 days to set up a government, which I think will probably be done, actually, by next week, hopefully.
0: You said 72 members of the Knesset signed on to that?
4: Absolutely, 72. And of course, to remind our listeners, he only needs 61 to have a majority.
0: Yeah, so that makes a very good coalition government coming together. Well, what are now then the next steps? Any other roadblocks in the way?
4: Well, the next step actually means that the Knesset will reconvene on Monday and Tuesday. The full... Coalition agreement will be placed on the seats or the desks of every single of the 120 members of I said there will be a debate. Mr. Netanyahu and probably Mr. Gantz will present their government in terms of general policy statements. There'll be a bit of a debate, and within a day, eventually, motion to uh, confirm uh, the government of, oh, I think it's the 23rd government, maybe already or maybe the 24th, I'm losing track, will be confirmed, and then we can get on with the business of hand, which means governing in a corona cycle, in a employment cycle, that all is giving us the ups and downs here in New Zealand.
0: You know, it looks like we're coming full circle now from the first question I confronted Winky with about uh, the Agreement to allow 7,000 housing units in Efrat, and we're coming back now. If the government is formed, Netanyahu campaigned along the way that he would annex Judea and Samaria, and even possibly uh, the Jordan Valley as well. This looks like it's just a wide-open opportunity for Netanyahu to stay true to his campaign promises, doesn't it?
4: It looks that way. I am not going to be placing bets on this, Jimmy. I am going to guess here on your station that we will first hear about the Jordan River Valley, and then perhaps we'll hear about extending a form of sovereignty to the existing Jewish communities, which means it's not going to be a blanket extension over all Judea and Samaria. And then again, as I talk to you, the rumor is that Mr. Mike Pompeo, Secretary of State, is also expected here next week. We saw an article by U.S. Ambassador David Freeman in the New York Post uh, talking about the issue. So um, I really don't know exactly how it's going to go down, but I'm sure there'll be more of a move forward than standing in place or going backwards, God forbid.
0: Well, let me remind everybody that this is man's government, his way of going about the Jewish people taking sovereignty over the land that God has given to them. God's plan is this will be their land, their land forever. That's Deuteronomy chapter 30, the land covenant. And it's the absolute reason why the Lord made a promise, not for the Jewish people, the book of Ezekiel chapter 36 and verse 22. But for his holy namesake, he is going to make this happen. We know that's an absolute, do we not, Winky?
4: Well, that is our tradition. That is our legacy. That is our imperative for the future. Once again, we do not wish anybody who lives here among us harm. We try to do the best for everybody in terms of civil rights, liberties, economic improvement, hygiene, science, uh, economic advancement. All these issues are open to everybody here. All we ask is that in this Jewish national home, we be allowed to live in peace and security, and we will help not only Arabs or Druze or anybody else, including Christians living here, but we also help out the entire world.
0: That's the voice of Winky Badad. He's a very special friend, our broadcast partner, right here on Prophecy Today. And it's the latest update on the election situation in Israel. Looks like it's moving forward. Everything's going to come together, possibly by next week. Winky, thank you for this late report. We appreciate it so much. We'll have another conversation down the road.
4: Jimmy, thank you for having me on. Goodbye to you and our listeners.
0: Very important conversation with Winky Madad, giving us insight into how the election process is playing out there in Israel. Well, we're going to change regions of the world. We're going to go now to the European Union, the man who covers that for us, John Rood. He lived in Brussels, Belgium, for over 30 years. He knows that area and the European Union almost like the back of his hand. That's why we go to him on a weekly basis. And John, you know, we have to bring in the coronavirus pandemic in every situation that we're going to be talking about, especially even in Europe. Looks to me in the reports I'm getting, the European leaders are being intimidated in the face of China. I know China is a major player. Why is this happening? Why are the European Union leaders intimidated?
5: Yes, Europe is showing some real geopolitical weakness. They're uh, overly dependent on China. One example now is of the EU going a different direction than the United States is the French government is uh, allowing the Chinese telecom company Huawei to supply 5G equipment. There's basically only three suppliers in the entire world, Ericsson, Nokia, and Huawei. It's been essentially banned in the United States over uh, security purposes. Now we see the USA decoupling from China over the coronavirus the EU is very, very silent on this issue. So will the EU need to choose their partners, USA or China, in such big issues as a telecom, et telecom, etc.?
0: Well, in light of the fact that China is a major player, Russia also, and seemingly China and Russia partnering together, looks like that is putting democracy at risk there in Central and Eastern Europe. Give us the latest on that.
5: Yes, there has been a dramatic report by Freedom House concluding that there is a great decline in democracy in Eastern Europe. There's particular concern for Hungary and Poland. And then, uh, as you mentioned, in the Balkans, Serbia and Montenegro. Montenegro, by the way, is an absolutely beautiful country with the Bay of KOTOR. Uh, but Russian and Chinese government is actually working on intervening in serbia and montenegro montenegro actually uses the euro currency so the eastern european nations they joined the eu for an economic benefit now they're reluctant to deal with the eu control and of course if there's ever a vacuum countries as russia and china step in to fill that
0: and it looks like hungary is fighting back though Uh, they claim they do still have a democracy. Do we know anything different on that story?
5: Well, Hungary is at the forefront of the democratic debate here. The EU is accusing Hungary for the leader, Orban, taking sort of dictatorial uh, powers. And at the same time, what Hungary is doing is an overreaction to the lack of EU democracy. As we know and have frequently discussed, the EU is not a democratic uh, setup. up And so they've actually produced the situation in Hungary, which is an overbalance. So the EU is non-democratic, and now why would they be surprised that in opposition to that, Hungary has gone too far on the other side? There's a great political shifting, and for now the epicenter of democracy in Europe and this question is in Hungary.
0: And let me ask you finally, as we get your report, John, on the European Union and all that's associated with that politically setting the stage for the prophetic to be fulfilled, we've talked before about migrants going into Italy. It looks like they're continuing to storm the beaches of Italy, even in spite of uh, the coronavirus. What's the situation?
5: You know, Italy is another country where these tensions are all coming out and accelerating. So Italy is the third largest Eurozone economy. They've gone through incredible tensions. We have the coronavirus. We have constant political turmoil, economic turmoil, and then added to this, as you say, the migrant situation, which has never been solved, and so... They actually, migrants that come into, through Malta, for example, into a small island that belongs to Italy called Lampedusa, and so dealing with the flux of immigrants has been very, very difficult, and then on the north, coming from Slovenia into the area of Trieste. So all these things are compounding, coronavirus, political, economic, migrants, all tensions in Italy. It is a very center- of what the EU result has been because of dealing with all these tensions at the same time. How, how much can it take?
0: Yeah, how much can it take? But this is all political, and that, of course, is what we look at as the political sets the stage, as I mentioned a moment ago, for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. And that is the exact reason we go to John Rood on a weekly basis. John, thank you for your report. We'll talk again next week.
5: Thank you. My pleasure.
0: Very important report when John Rood comes to the broadcast table. Well, here's a good friend of mine coming to the broadcast table, Mike Gendron. Mike and I have had a partnership in ministry across the United States in different conferences. We've both been speakers. We have done a bunch of radio together. He's one of our broadcast partners. We exchange articles when we see them. And the other day we were talking about two articles that we were reading. I said, Mike, we need to come on the air. We need to talk about it. And what we were looking at was the relationship between the former Pope, Pope Benedict, and today the present Pope, Pope Francis. Mike, talk to me about this relationship between this former Pope and the present Pope. Tell me, how are they getting along?
6: Previously, they were getting along very well until Pope Benedict just released a new publicized autobiography, and he said some very disturbing words that would um, go against Pope Francis, and I think it's really wild up the Vatican. And we have to look back on the history of these two popes. Pope Benedict was the author of the Catechism of the Catholic Church, which is the official authority of the Catholic Church. It's built itself upon previous councils, the Council of Trent, Vatican I and II. So Pope Francis has been the pastoral pope. In fact, many people believe Pope Benedict stepped down because he did not have the gift of pastoring. He was more doctrinal and dogmatic. And so now you see the clash of these two popes, Pope Benedict is said to be very conservative because he holds to historic Roman Catholicism. But Pope Francis, being pastoral, he wants to be all things to all people, and he's actually creating a universal or a global religion by eliminating any doctrinal or dogmatic differences that might keep other religions from coming to form this global religion.
0: Now, am I correct that Pope Benedict, or the former Pope Benedict, is staying there at the Vatican as well as Pope Francis?
6: Yes, he is. Pope Benedict, the retired Pope, he's now 93 years old. Pope Francis is 83 years old, so they have a 10-year separation in age. But yes, they're staying together, and again, up until just recently, they've been on good terms and good friends
0: Well, what about the globalist theology of Francis? I mean, he seems to be open to everybody and anybody, homosexuals, abortionists, even atheists. I understand he says that atheists may have an opportunity to go to heaven. Give us some details about the theology of Pope Francis and how it may be in conflict with Pope Benedict.
6: Well, sure. As I mentioned earlier, uh, Pope Francis has gone against many of historic Roman Catholic dogmas and doctrines, and he goes so far as to say, as you've said, that atheists will make it to heaven as long as they are sincere in their belief. Uh, Pope Francis is now known to be a universalist, believing that everyone is a child of God, that everyone will eventually make it to heaven. He's actually denied the existence of hell He is pointing people to Mary, who's another universalist. The apparitions of Mary have been coming for all of her children, and we really believe that an apparition of Mary will eventually unite the world in a global religion because even Muslims are going to apparition sites to get a message from Mary. So the Pope has listed many heresies in his seven years as the Pope of Rome, He's denied the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's attributed the work of Jesus Christ to Satan, and that's when he said that Jesus Christ is the one that is dividing evangelicals from Roman Catholics, and that is the work of the devil. Well, we know from Scripture that Jesus did come to divide believers from unbelievers, and so for the Pope to attribute the work of Christ to Satan is really going beyond the pale He's also pointed people to the wrong door for the remission of sins punishment over the millennial period. He encouraged people to walk through the wooden door at St. Peter's for a plenary indulgence whereby all their sins would be forgiven rather than pointing them to the living door, the Lord Jesus Christ. So, Jimmy, these are just some of the heresies that this Pope Francis has been proclaiming in his seven-year pontificate. And you can see they not only go against the Bible, but also against historic Roman Catholicism.
0: And I would imagine, Mike, that Benedict is going crazy understanding that uh, he resigned and made way for a pope that would have this type of theology, which is totally, even in a terminology from a Christian's perspective, total heresy, but in the Catholic Church even talking about that is Benedict getting under the skin to Francis? Is Francis going to try to do something to change this whole situation, or is he capable of doing that?
6: Well, just uh, two days ago, Pope Francis talked about the division that now resides in the Catholic Church, so he's very well aware of it. And I don't know what he's going to do. I guess we'll have to wait and see, but I just want to share with you what Pope Benedict said in his autobiography. He claimed that people who oppose homosexual unions in today's world are excommunicated from society. He said that it was the same thing with abortion and creating human life in the laboratory. And so he went on to say that it was natural for those who oppose these issues to be in the spiritual power of Antichrist. And so this is actually a serious indictment Pope Benedict is making against Pope Francis. Here you have a former pope implying that the current pope is working in the power of Antichrist. So this division is going deep within the Vatican, and time will have to tell what's going to happen within the Vatican walls.
0: I would say then, ironically, Mike, that uh, neither pope, who is biblically correct, even though one is more conservative, Benedict more conservative than Francis, they're both moving in a wrong direction, aren't they?
6: Well, they really are. And both of them, of course, have the spirit of Antichrist. They deny the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. And, you know, for Pope Francis to say there is no hell, Jesus spoke more about hell than he did about heaven. In fact, Jesus came to die on a cross to save people from hell, And so this is clearly the spirit of Antichrist that Pope Francis is speaking in.
0: And I would say that both of these popes are a part of a system that is basically leading us towards uh, the fulfillment of Revelation 17, the false church which will be headquartered there in Rome.
6: Well, you're right. We'll see a false church which will be global in scope. We'll also see a global government and also a global economy. And so Pope Francis is really pushing towards this. In fact, it's really interesting that Pope Benedict came out against this whole spirit of humanism, and yet it is Pope Francis who said later this year he's calling for a global pact to create a new humanism. And so these popes are really at odds with one another, and Pope Francis is really pushing the ecumenical agenda forward at a very rapid rate. But now we see from some of his statements recently he's also pushing for a global government. On May 8th, 2019, he spoke at the Pontifical Academy of Social Sciences, and he demanded that a new supranational legal body enforce climate change and other policies that are dealing with worldwide threats. He advocated a policy of decreased national sovereignty and also to increase global unity. It's really interesting. He went so far as to say that we need to tear down our border walls. And a lot of people that have been to the Vatican know that the Vatican is surrounded by a very strong wall of about 12 or 14 feet high in different places.
0: You know, I'm not willing to say at this point in time that Pope Francis is the Antichrist. However, Pope Benedict seems to lean that way in his thinking but both of them making way for this system in Revelation chapter 17, the false church in Rome, Italy, to come into place. Therefore, that is great motivation, is it not, Mike, to try to go out and reach each and every Catholic person we can come in contact with, with the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that's what your ministry, Proclaiming the Gospel, is doing, isn't it?
6: Yeah, we've dedicated the last 30 years of our lives to develop resources to reach out to Roman Catholics with gospel tracts and DVDs. I've written a book called Preparing for Eternity, which is a great handbook for a Roman Catholic to sit down and just contrast what the Catholic Church teaches in light of what the Bible teaches. And this book has set many Roman Catholics free. So we encourage your listeners, if they have Catholic friends, don't let them march proudly toward Hell's Gate you know if we really love them we're going to speak the truth in love so that they can be saved
0: amen amen that's the only reason god has not sent his son jesus christ at the rapture the lord is not slack concerning his promise second peter chapter 3 but he's not willing that any should perish and there's a whole catholic world out there that needs to come to know christ proclaimingthegospel.org is the address for Mike Gendron's ministry, and you can go there and find out about all this information he was telling you is available. Proclaimingthegospel.org. Hey, Mike, thanks a lot. Great conversation. I thought it would be good for us to just talk out loud for our listeners to eavesdrop on the conversation, and I think it was very beneficial. Appreciate it. We'll have another conversation real soon, Mike.
6: Okay, Jimmy. Keep looking up.
0: Amen. We're going to have to take a quick break, and when we come back, David James... We're going to be talking about the great awakening that supposedly a evangelist in Jerusalem is saying is on its way. We'll see what the Bible has to say about that. It's all ahead right here on Prophecy Today. Hi everybody, Jimmy DeYoung. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. So glad you could join us. I want you to respond to our poll question, if you will. Go to my website, prophecytoday.com. There on the home page, on the left-hand column, if you'll scroll down, you'll find the question. Here's the question. As we try to discern where we are in God's calendar of prophetic events for the end of times, do you think it's better to study God's prophetic passages in the Bible than allowing current events to dictate our understanding of Bible prophecy? That's the poll question. By the way, we would suggest you might want to go to my YouTube channel, youtube.com forward slash prophecy today. There you'll find some prophecy teaching, teaching that I've done over the years and in our school of prophets, plus in addition to that, our prophecy moment again, that YouTube channel, and be sure to subscribe to the channel when you're there. It's youtube.com forward slash prophecy today. We now bring to these microphones David James. David and I have a weekly conversation that you can eavesdrop on for the purpose of being able to discern a biblical perspective as it relates to the issue we may be discussing, and then we get you to become very practical applying these biblical principles to your daily walk with the Lord. Hope this is of a help to you, and we're so glad to have you along. And David, before we get to today's main topic, which is going to be talking about Mike Evans' new book and his connection with David Wilkerson and the Pandemic Prophecy, I want to spend a few minutes responding to some emails that we received after last week's discussion. And as we seem to have stirred up a bit of a hornet's nest, I thought it would be very interesting for us to remember our comments and what we actually said about Bill Gates. Talk to us about these emails that came in.
7: Sure. Well, some weren't too happy with us as we received emails from three different listeners, who felt we had downplayed Bill Gates' involvement in the current pandemic, especially as it relates to a vaccine and possible tracking technology. Two of the listeners also sent a message by a pastor in Georgia, and I was already aware of that message. And I also know that Andy Woods has been dealing with this as well and both have important information to consider. Uh, First of all, I'd say, Jimmy, we can get things wrong, and we're always willing to reconsider. uh, At the same time, concerning the present situation especially, there's a lot of information out there with some very good people on various sides of the issue, and it's sort of tough to sort out fact from fiction. Uh, One person was upset because of using liberal sources, but I had actually cautioned on air that Snopes can be liberally biased, so I gave that disclaimer. And on the other hand, Snopes does get some things right, and that's why I often start there, just like with Wikipedia, but then i also looked further and i did that with politifact which has a better reputation and they agreed with snopes on this one and we also clearly said that all of this is going somewhere with a one world government and antichrist the mark of the beast and i even noted that this technology could be used in the future but i also gave reasons why this isn't the mark of the beast at the present moment So could all this be setting the stage? Yes. Should we be vigilant? Absolutely. Are we being set up? Possibly. Are some strange and troubling things happening right now uh, with this current uh, epidemic? Uh, Without a doubt. And yet to go much beyond this and what we said, I would say, is is speculation. Would you agree or have any other thoughts on this, Jimmy?
0: Well, I basically agree 100% with what you said last week and what you just now have said as well, David. You know the banner, let me remind everybody, I've already mentioned it on the broadcast today, the banner over my website says, Looking at Current Events in Light of Biblical Prophecy. And that sets our priority. I do not, and I don't allow anybody else on the air to do this either, I do not look at the current events to drive my understanding of Bible prophecy. I look at the prophetic passages. You look at the prophetic passages. Often when I do the little 15-minute broadcast and include you, I said, David James is coming now, Bible in hand, to explain this headline. So the Bible is key for our understanding of any prophetic scenario that we talk about. We cannot use speculation. We cannot sensationalize any of these reports that we hear. And I think it's dangerous for anybody. Some prophecy teachers are doing that. I think that's very dangerous as they sensationalize or speculation is used in their interpretation of the Bible in light of these global events. So I think uh, we're trying to take a balance, but the Word of God has to be the absolute as far as we're concerned in anything that we say about any particular issue. Now, I agree. Is it setting the stage? (laughs) Absolutely. That's why we look at the current events to see how these events are setting the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. So, David, you and I are in lockstep. Well, let me go to the next question I wanted to confront you with. Over the past several days, the Fox News Channel has been running an ad, an advertisement for a new book by the author Mike Evans. It's called A Great Awakening is Coming, and it claims to include a prophecy of David Wilkerson that would concern the present coronavirus pandemic. Talk to me about it.
7: Well, you and I have both known about Mike Evans and David Wilkerson for a long time, and so when I started seeing this ad for this new book on Fox News, I started doing some checking on my own, and then a couple of days later, you called me to see about the possibility of discussing the book this weekend during our discussion. After doing some searching, I was able to get my hands on a PDF version, which I bought and downloaded. Anyway, I was able to go through the whole book. I read much of it and skimmed through the rest, and to be honest, it wasn't what I was expecting, especially given the title and the ads on Fox News and and even the first chapter of the book. All the hype surrounding the book seemed to revolve around a prophecy made by David Wilkerson, who was a well-known pastor and preacher in New York City, especially in the 1980s and 90s. And he supposedly predicted a pandemic sweeping through New York City that brought a large-scale shutdown, uh, but with the ultimate result being a wide Spread revival in this country and around the world
0: well can you tell me something else about Mike Evans and David Wilkerson and let everybody understand who we're talking about or what the concern is since their names come up often in the news from time to time. What well, can you tell us about the their ministries and, and can they be trusted as Bible teachers?
7: Well, Mike Evans is a well-known or at least a fairly well-known pro-israel journalist and is the founder and head of several international nonprofit organizations both in the United States and the Netherlands including a ministry called the Jerusalem prayer team he's also a New York Times best-selling author and has written around 70 books and has provided commentary or and analysis on Middle East affairs both on TV and on radio and he's also produced some 18 documentaries based Based on his books on Israel. Now, his parents had immigrated from the Soviet Union prior to his birth in 1947, and while his mother was Jewish, his father has been described as a wife beating alcoholic. Uh, sorry to hear and have read that part. And also that he was strongly anti-Semitic, even though he had married a Jewish woman. And he had also made the claim that Mike wasn't even his son. So that's a tragic uh, back. to to Mike's early life. Uh, From what I can tell, Mike became a believer around age 11 and has a degree from Southwestern Assemblies of God College. Now, David Wilkerson was perhaps best known for his book, The Cross and the Switchblade, which he wrote back in 1962, and that was about his ministry on the streets of New York City, and that book ended up becoming a bestseller with over 50 million copies in over 30 languages of the world. Now, he was born into a family of Pentecostal preachers and claimed to have been baptized by the Holy Spirit at 8 years old, and he started a ministry called Teen Challenge in Brooklyn in 1958 and then later moved his ministry headquarters to Lindale, Texas, but then returned to New York City to establish Times Square Church in 1986, and then he died in 2011. So the teaching and writing and ministry of both men are all heavily influenced by Pentecostal and charismatic theology, and so we need to understand what they say, what they write, through that particular lens of theology.
0: David, let's get back now to the book uh, that we're talking about, A Great Awakening is Coming. What does it have to say concerning Wilkerson's supposed prophecy and the present pandemic, and of course, about a future great awakening or a revival?
7: I would say that I was somewhat surprised by the book overall. It wasn't what I expected. The ads on Fox News give the impression the book would deal a lot with Wilkerson's prophecy and what's in store for America. And the same is true of the book description on Amazon.com. But after reading the book, that really all feels like marketing hype and and is sort of a bait-and-switch. Evans opens his book by saying, God has given me a word that has shaken me to my knees. As I was working on this revelation that God put in my heart, I picked up an old Bible, and a handwritten note fell out. It was from a meeting I had with Dr. David Wilkerson at the Embassy Suites near the Dallas-Fort Worth Airport on a Tuesday in 1986. That note was a prediction of the impending fall of the Jim Baker's PTL empire, as it turns out, Jimmy, and that would happen the next year in 1987. Uh, then, during that same meeting, Wilkerson apparently told Evans the following: "I see a plague coming on the world, and the bars and the churches and the government will shut down. The plague will hit New York City and shake it like it has never been shaken. The plague is going to force prayerless believers into radical prayer and into their Bibles and." repentance will be the cry from the man of God in the pulpit, and out of it will come a third great awakening that will sweep America and the world. Then Evans goes on to say that the coronavirus will usher in a great awakening. But, you know, apparently Wilkerson's organization knows nothing about this prophecy. There's apparently no record of it. And also, while Evans says the coronavirus has prophetic significance in his book, the book actually goes on to say very little about what this will look like. He talks about some past revivals in different places, but for a supposedly prophetic book uh, with this kind of hype and advertising, it's really very generic and also definitely has a charismatic Pentecostal feel to it.
0: Okay, David, now that all said... And thinking about this biblically, what can we expect in a global great awakening? In other words, is that in the scriptures? And what are some of the things that we can expect and learn from this present crisis that's going forward?
7: Well, the Bible doesn't necessarily discuss everything that will happen in history between the first and second comings of Christ. For example, we don't see major events of the last few hundred years in any detail, if at all. For example, the Reformation or the establishment of the United States as a country, or the Civil War, the First and Second World Wars, or the Cold War, the breakup of the Soviet Union, and neither does it talk about the First and Second Great Awakenings in the 18th and 19th centuries. But, it does tell us what things will be like as we move deeper into the last days leading up to the rapture in Daniel's 70th week. For example, in 2 Timothy 3, we read, In the last days perilous times will come, men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, and and it goes on. And then in 1 Timothy 4, Paul said, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith." giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines and de- of demons. So while there may be local revivals, the general global trend will likely be more toward conflict and apostasy than toward revival, and we must continue to prepare people for the rapture and warn them of the judgment that's going to be coming afterward.
0: David, you're quite the young man and a great researcher and, boy, dedicated to spending just a couple of hours to read a a book to get all the information and background you need in order for us to have this discussion. So thank you, my good friend. Appreciate that very much. And that's why I want on a weekly basis to have you come with me alongside here on the broadcast, Prophecy Today, and discuss these issues in light of the biblical perspective that we can give the people from our study of God's Word, the proper study of God's Word. Appreciate it, David. We'll have another conversation next week.
7: I'll look forward to it, Jimmy. Thanks a lot.
0: We're going to take a break. When we come back, I'll take everything our broadcast partners had to say. We'll put it together. I'll open up the Bible. We'll take a look at the book and see how we are quickly approaching the time of the rapture. That's all ahead right here on Prophecy Today.
2: Christians in the last days. To order your copy of Jimmy D. Young's Revelation, a chronology, call us toll free at 877-674-3298 or visit our website at prophecytoday.com
8: Hey everyone, this is Dave James with the Alliance for Biblical Integrity. You hear me each week discussing current theological issues with Jimmy DeYoung on the Prophecy Today weekend broadcast. We founded the Alliance for Biblical Integrity because we saw a need for an apologetics and discernment ministry that would be an important resource for local churches, schools, and ministry organizations that face ever-changing theological challenges in today's world. I teach many different courses and seminars in the United States and around the world and can tailor the seminars for Sunday schools, Bible studies, and church services. And the courses for weekend conferences of six to ten hours. For more information, you can go to the ABI website at biblicalintegrity.org. That's one word: biblicalintegrity.org, and click on courses and seminars on the main menu. You can also contact me personally through the contact page on the ABI website.
0: I look forward to hearing from you. It's time right now here on Prophecy Today. For us to take a look at the book. We've listened to our broadcast partners across the world giving us reports on current events. And what they've done, they've worked very hard to give us the details behind these stories and basically the truth on each of these news headlines. This is the great privilege we have here on Prophecy Today. To have a team of broadcast partners that are so qualified to stay on top of the stories, get the details on the stories, and make sure we have the truth. By the way, if you missed any of the reports that were given by our broadcast partners, may I suggest you can go to my website, prophecytoday.com, then go to PTRN, Prophecy Today Radio Network. There you'll be able to find these reports archived. That address again, prophecytoday.com. Go to PTRN, and once you've listened, be sure to pass along that link to a friend so they can hear these very important reports given by our broadcast partners today, right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. Well, let's go through and let me give you a prophetic perspective on each of the reports. Today, Ken Timmerman, located in southern France, talked with me about Iran pulling out of Syria. Now, this would be good news for Israel, and one Israeli defense official made the same statement Iran, by the way, is also involved in Iraq, which is splitting their monies and their manpower as well. But may I quickly remind you that all of these that I have mentioned are in Bible prophecy, the prophetic scenario. Syria and Iran are mentioned in Ezekiel 38 and Daniel chapter 11. That's the battle of Gog and Magog, and that's the alignment of nations that will form under the leadership of Russia, to try to take out the Jewish state of Israel. We mentioned Iraq in Kin's report. That's Babylon of Revelation chapter 18. That's the location of that one world economic, political, governmental system in the last half of the tribulation period, the last three and a half years, talked about there in Revelation 18, destroyed as laid out in Revelation 16, starting at verse 17 and following. David Dolan, who is a longtime journalist in the Middle East, gave us his Middle East news update this week. You know the Palestinians are warning that if the newly formed government in Israel moves ahead to annex Judea and Samaria and the Jordan Valley, that the Palestinians are going to tear up, get rid of, break all agreements that they have with Israel. And in particular, we're talking about the Oslo Accords, which was that peace treaty they signed back in 1993. Well, that peace treaty was never normalized. It's seemingly not working anyway. But uh, let me just talk about the Palestinian people. They have one mindset. And that was laid out in the book of Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel pre-wrote history there in chapter 35 of this prophetic book. Verse 5 says that the Palestinians, the Edomites, the people that the Lord is judging, people of Mount Seir, that's where the Edomites, where Esau went, according to Genesis 36 and verse 8. And so in verse 5 of Ezekiel 35, they want to kill the Jews. Verse 10 talks about they will steal their land. You know, the tribulation period is seven years long. Many of the Islamic states will be destroyed at the beginning in the Battle of Gog and Magog. But the Palestinians, the Edomites, will continue for the seven years. And then at the end, with the return of Jesus Christ, the little prophetic book of Obadiah will be fulfilled, verses 15 to 18. Those controlling the Temple Mount, that would be the Palestinian people of today, will be wiped out as if they have never been. Winky Madad gave his insights into the formation of a government finally, after 17 months and three elections, there is a unity government in place in Israel. Please remember Revelation 17:17, 17, 17, where it says God uses human government to accomplish his will. Now Israel, with a government, a stable government, God can use the political leaders of Israel to lead the Jewish state into the end-time scenario he has in mind for them. John Rue gives us a European Union update, helping us to realize that China is involved with the European Union and seemingly is intimidating the member states of the European Union. Both China and the European Union are key players in the prophetic scenario, the European Union, infrastructure for the revived Roman Empire, Daniel chapter 2, the 10 toes, and chapter 7, the 10 horns. China is a major player. When you go to the kings of the East, referred to in Revelation chapter 16 and verse 12, Mike Gendron talked about the relations between the former Pope Benedict and the present Pope Francis. Benedict is somewhat the conservative, Francis, very, very liberal. Both are in a satanic system that is preparing for the Antichrist and setting the stage for Revelation 17, a false church headquartered in Rome, Italy, to be put in place and controlled by the Antichrist. And then David James and I had our weekly conversation. We focused on a new book by Mike Evans, The Great Awakening Coming. I want you to listen to the book report that David gave us. He read the entire book before we went on the air with our conversation. But my studies of God's Word show that there will not be a worldwide Great Awakening before Jesus Christ. Instead, it focuses on how bad the world will be. 1 Timothy chapter 4, and verse 1, Paul says, they will listen to and be guided by doctrines of demons. And then Paul, in his swan song, Second Timothy, chapter 3, he talked about the fact that people will have a form of godliness denying the powers thereof and love itself more than they love God. Well, there's a lot more there you need to read, Second Timothy, chapter 3, and then read the exhortation from Paul in chapter 4. You know, as we talk about the issues we've discussed with our broadcast partners, we can only come to one conclusion, that the rapture could actually happen at any moment. That's the next event in God's calendar. And by the way, that rapture could even happen today. Having said that, nothing left for me to say, except
2: let's keep looking up until...